When you partner with Axon, you immediately gain access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. We carry all major brands and sizes of tires and wheels. We specialize in large diameter wheels for large equipment. We have one of the largest OEM replacement wheel inventories in North America. Known for extreme flotation setups, duals, and triples, we have wheels for all makes and models of tractors, sprayers, combines, and grain carts. If we don't have the wheel in stock, we'll custom build, sandblast, and paint in-house. There isn't a more vast inventory in North America dedicated to helping dealers move more iron. With facilities on the West Coast and in the heart of the Midwest, leverage our 230,000 square feet of indoor inventory to solve any problem a grower may have. Move more iron with Axon. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by these great sponsors. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Podcast markets with Sean Hackett. Sean Hackett is with Hackett Financial out of Boca Raton, Florida. He's nice enough to come on and talk about what's happening in the marketplace. So, Sean, how you doing, bud? I'm doing good, Casey. Another day, another dollar. That's right. Something <laughs> like that. You must be living good if you get a dollar every day. So, <laughs> well, depends what currency it's in. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right, man. There's a lot of a lot of moving parts as usual here. Take a look at what's going on in the world. We've got this uh, situation in the energy market. We look at oil. Um, Russia is just as fast as they can sell stuff. They're selling stuff and or in, uh, Saudi Arabian OPEC countries are, are kind of sitting back, trying to hold back production to kind of get that price raised up. If you look where oil has been fluctuating for the last, it seems like almost, almost three months now, it's kind of been bouncing between that 69 and 74, 75, maybe every once in a while it jumps up to 76 or 77, but primarily it's kind of hovering in the low to, to mid seventies range. And, and it doesn't matter what anybody says, it just stays the same. And, and uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of geopolitical stuff there. When you start looking at where, how's China coming online and all those kind of things start to play in that, but it just, oil just can't seem to break out of that mid seventies range. Well, uh, 
Russia's been dumping oil at $65 a barrel to India and China and whoever else will buy it. And they keep doing it. So, you know, as long as they have the supply and the will to do that, there's just no way the, the oil market can muster up a rally beyond a short-term trade. And it just comes back down because $65 is holding it back. You know, it's just, it's like uh, having a leash around a dog. You know, you can only, <laughs> can only get so far away from the owner before the leash kicks in, you know, and that's the problem that, and the wheat market is exactly the same thing. Russia has been dumping wheat well below the market for months upon months. We try to rally here from time to time and then the leash gets pulled and we come back down and that, that Russia is holding that back. And then, you know, doesn't mean demand isn't uh, there for it. It just means that demand's being satiated by really cheap wheat and really cheap prude, right. which means anyone that wants to sell it for a higher price, you know, you're out of luck. Yeah. So. Yep. And you're, you're exactly right. It's good. For all the sanctions that are put against that and everything else you see, it hasn't stopped anybody from from really buying that. And, and it just stops it just stops who they sell it to, but right. it doesn't stop selling it. They're still selling it to those they don't care about the sanctions. And uh, as long as this uh, war is going on and they need a bunch of money, they're going to have to sell. Yeah, you know that's yep. the way. I mean, I don't. They just have to keep funding what they're doing, and the only way they can fund what they're doing is is they got to sell wheat and crude oil essentially. Yeah. So, yeah. so one, one thing that just came to my mind here, and we've talked about it quite a bit with all the stuff that's happening here, you've got India that is kind of holding on um, kind of that last bastion of hope when you start looking at, at overall supplies, but they've been struggling here of late looking at the weather pattern, Sean, that you, that you follow, what's your thoughts about um, Indian weather patterns moving forward? And, and do you still, are you still looking to see a, a big effect this year on their crop? Yeah, I mean, the, the monsoon season, for those who don't know, really starts June 1st, and it kind of ends at the end of September. Um, some might argue it's a little longer than that, but that's the core monsoon season. So we're in the first month. First month is not the most critical. There's never a bad June that can't be recovered if you have a good July, okay? But like the U.S., June is a setup month for the month of July, which is our, July is the number one monsoon rainfall month of the year for India. They must have the monsoon deliver in July. They cannot make it up in any other month, given how much more rainfall falls in July versus the other months. So, so far, what we have is we have a, a monsoon that's about two and a half weeks delayed and starting. We have rainfall that's way way down below normal and we've had extremely hot temperatures so we are definitely starting and showing the early signs of a poor monsoon season um and that's been our forecast and we think do believe that this is going to carry out uh carry over uh into the key month of july and if we get into the mid late july and july is is going to turn up significantly short then the markets that are produced out of India that they are important, whether it's rice, whether it's sugar, whether it's cotton, uh, they're going to react. And I think that this is going to be a, not just June, July, but I think they're just going to have a very poor monsoon season overall. And, and it's going to be a big story that one of the largest exporters of ag supplies in the world is actually going to be a, is going to halt or, or, or actually potentially import 
uh, depending how bad their crops turn out to be. Just as an example, sugar, this last year, they were down like 5% from what from what was expected. Not a, not a major problem, just a small, small, a little bit below normal. You know, and they cut off exports at half of what they were supposed to be uh, because they don't, they were worried about their supply. In a normal uh, weather crop year where that where El Nino is developing and you have the, you know, you can have sugar production down 20% or more. So a 5% reduction in production caused them to cut exports in half. What's going to happen if we have, if the market worries about a 20% reduction? It's lights out for the sugar market, just t- totally lights out. So that's that's the potential, uh, not only in sugar, but you could say the same thing about wheat and rice and cotton and all these other, you know, milk, they've become a net importer of milk for the first time in history because of problems with feed, uh, prices being too high, disease for the animals because of the aberrant weather and such forth and so on. So definitely something that we would uh, alert all your uh, listeners to pay attention to. We think it's going to be a pretty big story throughout the growing season this year and lead to a significant rupturing of, of the ag supply chain, at least for the crops that they are important uh, with growing there. Yep. So, All right. Finally, just put out a report this morning and I kind of had a brief chance to kind of read through it before we came on. But but basically, we're, we're setting in a, uh, we've got two thirds of the cake bake, I guess, as you start looking at, at these weather cycles, what we've got. So we've got um, got windy dry weather you know kind of across the the central grain belt um out in my area you've got some cooler wet weather that you see moving through but in the, the central grain belt area you see some uh drier conditions there but we haven't had the heat yet i think that's that's the one thing that we're st- we haven't had we haven't had those high well what's 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 a, what's a sc- what's scary casey mm-hmm. is without having like per- persistent high heat we've had a few days you know a little heat here and there but yeah. without without having persistent heat we still have subsoil moisture at 2012 levels and and on and akin to the to prior drought levels, meaning that our subsoil moistures have been depleted to an historic degree up to this point without even having the heat. Um, if you look at vegetative health, which is a way of taking satellite pictures and determining uh, how the vegetation looks, uh, and you can equate that to what it was last year versus now, what it was in 2012 versus now. And the vegetative health is very, very, very poor um, without having the heat because it's just been so perpetually dry. Remember, the, the problem is the dryness started very, very early. A lot of droughts don't really get going until mid-late June. This one started, you know, in early, mid-May. So this was an early start. And I think that's why we're seeing effects that are greater than you would expect to see given the lack of heat. That's why if we are, if we were to bring in the heat, Casey, as we get into pollination and we maintain a, a drier pattern, a drier pattern doesn't mean no rainfall. It just means that you're going to continue to have below normal rainfall, right? right? But if you have three quarters of an inch in Iowa and it's cool, that actually can go a long way with the genetics we have and with the soils they have in improving the prospects for the crop. Uh, if it's hot and and you get three quarters of an inch, it does absolutely nothing, especially with subsoil moisture as poor as it is. So that's really where we're at. Can the heat come in um, and really deliver a lethal blow to crop prospects as we move into pollination? 
The rains that were widely advertised over the last week, great, greatly disappointed. And so we've had a reaction to the upside here early this week. There's a, a another well-advertised set of rains coming over the next uh, seven to 10 days. The models have been projecting rain uh, all season long, and they continue to uh, over-promise, and the rain's under-deliver. Now, just because that's the trend doesn't mean that they, these rains won't deliver. It's just been that the trend is they just have not been able to pick these rains correctly. So if this rain event over the next 10 days does not deliver, Casey, and we have another disappointing rain event, and then we go into pollination and we bring some heat in, then the markets are going to have to react much more violently to the upside. So I really think this next 10-day uh, potential window to get some meaningful rains is critically important to buying some time for the crop to kick the can down the road a little bit to see if we can, you know, to see if we can, you know, catch a change in the weather pattern. So we'll see what happens. But I think for right now, markets are going to pause. We might see a little bit of a correction. Um, the markets are very untrusting of the models right now because they've been so wrong, consistently wrong. At the same time, you th you keep throwing rain in a forecast. So, so, you know, they're going to, someone's going to sell just in case or right this time. But anyway, that's where we're at. Um, but I don't really see any overall change to a drier weather pattern. But if you really, really want to get Iowa and Illinois, those you know black soils, if you really want to get those crops down, I really think you got to bring in the heat during. It doesn't matter if you're bringing the heat now; just got to bring in the heat in July. And uh, you know we we have a couple of um, variables that we're watching that typically have been very good at determining that one is global angular momentum. Typically that needs to be neutral to negative to, to be a very, very hot signature right now it's positive and it has been positive. And that's why we've been having the cool weather. Um, the Euro model has it weakening considerably into the end of the month to where it's kind of a weak positive. Uh, the GFS has it staying strong positive. Uh, obviously, if the euro model is, is correct and, and that trend continues downward, you could foresee a potential for global angular momentum to move into negative territory in July, given what the euro trend looks like in terms of the downtrend. And, uh, I, you know, obviously, there's no credible way I know of to predict global angular momentum other than to follow the trends uh, in the models and to follow El Nino. So one of the things that tells us that maybe the euro is onto something versus the GFS, which is typically been is typically the worst model. It's it performs worse than the euro, although they both are terrible. Um, is that the uh, central sea surface uh, temperatures of the, of the central Pacific, the El uh, Nino has been weakening for over a week now. Um, you know, we had this big push to about plus 0.9 degrees C. And now we're about 0.65 plus 0.65 degrees, which is borderline marginal El Nino. A weakening El Nino uh, signature tends to press the global angular momentum in the downward direction. Maybe that's what the euro is picking up on. Um, and the GFS is just not seeing it correctly. They're not initializing it correctly. But typically, you know, weakening El Nino trend does tend to put some downward pressure on, on global angular momentum. Obviously, We'll have to watch this, but if we start to see that the GFS is starting to cave in and it's confirming that the euro is on the right track um, and that we're moving towards a much more 
uh, weaker global angle momentum and possibly something more negative. We start to see uh, some projections of a negative global angle momentum, then, then that's what brings in you know, the really, really nasty hot to go with the dry. The other thing we're watching, and this is something that happened in, in 2012, is that North Atlantic has been piping, has been really getting hot. The sea surface temperature of North Atlantic has just been sizzling here uh, the last couple of weeks, a big time heating up of North Atlantic. And we know that if we have a negative Pacific decadal oscillation, which we do, um, and you have a piping hot North Atlantic, that's a hot signature, meaning that combinations a hot signature we showed a chart today on our uh report that went over in 2012 and we saw this dramatic heat you know warming up of north atlantic between mid-june and mid-july with a negative global angle momentum into this and that's what brought in the big heat so so that's a hot si signature so what it so so the way i'm the way we're framing it casey is this Let's just say that the global momentum stays positive, but if if the if this North Atlantic stays hot, it probably means we're going to get a warmer outcome than you would expect to see with a positive global angle momentum. But if you really want to bring in the heat, if you get those two things combined, that's how you get scorching of the earth for the corn crop in July. Not that I'm not that I'm wishing that upon anybody. By the way, I, I'm not here cheering scorch of the earth weather at all. It's going to happen whether I forecast or not, but I'm saying that that's what we are looking for to give us the green light that the heat's going to come in and deliver the knockout punch. Right now, as of today, the global angle momentum is not showing up, but the North Atlantic is showing up. And the models are very, you know, the models are very, uh, they're not agreeing with each other. So we, 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 either the euro is wrong and it's going to meet the GFS or the GFS. Somewhere in the next one to two weeks, we're going to get a move in one direction or the other. And that'll be a very, very important um, development. So, yeah. yeah. All right. So one more question. So you were, you were, had a friend of mine just walk in here and, and I know the answer to this. So I'm going to make sure I'm just asking for a friend here, but um Global atmospheric angular momentum we talked about before, and that is the correlation between how fast the atmosphere is spinning to the correlation of the Earth as it spins, right? And right, so 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 it means if the atmosphere is moving faster than the Earth, then the winds are very very strong. Right, they're really really strong. It's that's the positive lamp. Um, that does that tends to keep things at least in North America. Remember, every region is different of how GLAM impacts it. But for North America, it's a cold or a cooler biased signature. Now, if this, the atmosphere is moving more slowly than the Earth, then the winds are very, very low, a negative global angular momentum. Generally speaking, generally speaking, El Nino produces a positive GLAM. La Nina produces a negative claim. It's not 100% ironclad proof. Nothing is in this life, but that's the general trend. Um, right. and, um, and, and, and it's a very, very reliable signature over many, many years under many, many different circumstances is positive, negative claim and what it means for temperatures during July. Um, it means something completely different during the winter time, but during July, that's what the, this specific, highly correlated teleconnection means it doesn't mean you can't have warm weather in july it doesn't mean you couldn't have some above normal temperatures but to get the really scorching heat casey very very hard to imagine we would get that in july without 
global annual momentum at least being more neutral to neutral negative. If it stays positive with the North Atlantic being hot, I think you could have some warmer temperatures, but not scorching hot, not like 2012. You would miss out on that scorching hot like we had in Argentina where it just, just burned the crop up. You'd miss that um, uh, effect if right. the global momentum stayed positive. So, all right. So you you've talked about in the past so on in the North Atlantic. You talked about you know how it's warming up, and then um, because of the warm up, there was a forgive me, I forget what it's called. There's a, a like a, a collection of of ice ice. And the Beaufort the Beaufort Gyre is 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 is, is north uh, west of Greenland. It's this big mm-hmm. area of water, and it typically circulates like this, and this traps all the fresh cold water that melts every summer uh, with an Arctic glacier. Um, and as long as it's spinning this way, it keeps, it's like a, it just, it's like a seal. It just keeps it. And yeah. then, the, and it, and it grows and it gets larger. Right now we have the largest quantity of fresh, cold Arctic water in history. Well, let's put it this way. Since we've been measuring it, right. Since we've been measuring it. Um, periodically, it will, the currents will reverse. And if it goes counterclockwise, then it just dumps all this cold, fresh water into the North Atlantic and into the Atlantic. And then you get your significant sea surface temperature cooling cycle, which we're anticipating occurring by 2025 to be the beginning of that process. Um, 1965 is the last time that we really saw the Beaufort Geyer reverse and dump all this cold, fresh water. And, you know, they call it the great salinity event because it reduces the salinity of the central northern Atlantic. And you can actually measure that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just dramatically changes weather patterns, moisture patterns, uh, temperature patterns, growing cycle length. Um, and, and it's a 40-year cycle. So it, it, we, we go through a 40-year period where, the, where it's trapped and a 40-year cycle where it's, 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 it's letting all this cold water come out. And so we've been we've been in the forty year warming cycle of sea surface temperatures for the Atlantic now. Uh, that is expected to peak in two thousand twenty five. If you read some recent research that Woods Hole puts out, and they do some of the best work on the Beaufort Gyre. I think they just put something out last month. They believe that a reversal of the of the of the a reversal of the rotation of the Beaufort Gyre is imminent. In their words, not mine, imminent. Um, that it's they actually are starting to see the early signs that it that the reversal process is about to begin, okay. um, and it and and this is a much larger cold pool than it was in 1965. And 1965 was a dramatic change in weather patterns and how cold things got and how short the growing cycle. So it is a it's something we've been talking about for over a decade as a big climatic weather event to be on look at because it's going to dramatically alter weather completely different from what we've seen in most of our lifetimes, at least since the mid 1980s. Um, we're not quite there yet, but it's something we're, you know, paying attention to as, as is the Woods Hole Institute, of course. And the minute we see that that's actually reversing and happening, or getting that uh, cooling of the Atlantic ocean, which would mean a negative AMO. Cause remember we've been in a positive Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation for better part of the last 40 years it would actually go to a negative AMO and that, wow, you want to take weather volatility up another notch on top of what we already have. That'll do it. That'll do it. 
That's is there any correlation between the what's it? What's that? You know, Bulford, What was it? Bulford, B E A U F O R T. Bulford Geyer, G Y R E. I believe that's how it's said. Bulford Geyer, Bulford Gyre. Whatever. I, you know, I'm, I think it's something like that. Tomato, tomato, right? But is there any, <laughs> any correlation between that and and the the warming of the North Atlantic, like you talked about? Is that is that increase or decrease the the that cycle. will that that would that would dramatically cool the North Atlantic. It would just shut it down. It would be a very you, the North Atlantic would get super super crazy cold. That's how you get your negative AMO. That's how you get your dramatic cooling, uh, you know, uh, of, of temperatures. That's how you get your longer winters. That's how you get your shorter growing cycles, because the AM the the North Atlantic, because remember, it's dumping into the North Atlantic. Right. So that's the first place that you're going to see. The big cool down occur when it when it does reverse. Right. What I'm asking is, as the like you talked about the North Atlantic, seeing some some signatures of warmth coming in, does that affect that cycle at all? The Borfagire cycle at all? As as a is that? Is that I'm not aware. Thing? I mean, we've had, we've we, we, we've yeah. generally had a warm North Atlantic for for you know at, to yeah. different degrees. So let me just give you an example. So the AML, which is essentially a measure of the difference between the North Atlantic, um. And the Central Atlantic, um, the AMO reached plus one point oh two last month. That is a record high AMO of all time, never seen before, ever since we've been recording this turn. That means that the Atlantic is just bubbling in the North Atlantic right now. Our experience, whether it's a stock, whether it's a commodity, whether it's climate. Whether it's economics, as you approach major turning points, bull market end, bear market end, you tend to get spike trades into a top or exhaustion crashes into a bottom. What tends to happen at the end of a warming trend is you get this final last gasp up in sea surface temperatures before the trend turns violently down. I don't know why the world operates this way, why the world, why the earth, why the forces seem to always have this final move before a, a turn, but it, it is it is it shows up repeatedly in cycle after cycle, chart after chart, that you get these exhaustion tops and exhaustion bottoms at important turning points. This final surge to a record AMO feels to me like the last gasp before we turn around, just as the Woods Hole Institute is indicating that they are seeing the early signs of a major turn. That would be kind of how it works. Remember, the 1930s Dust Bowl was the was the end of the last sea surface temperature warming cycle of the Atlantic before it turned violently back down. Um, so um, that's why the that's why we have the Gleisberg cycle risk is so high in 23. 24 or 25 because this is the this is your peak heat SSTs right sea surface temperatures this is your peak uh, aggressive hot potential this is your peak potential for drought like this is your this is where you if you're going to get a, a, an extreme event like Gleisberg it would occur at the end of a 40 year sea surface temperature warming cycle like it did in the 30s and like it's done 11 centuries. Um, that since we that we've studied it, so um, it's all you know. Everything's connected in this great cycle that we follow. But uh, I don't think in and of itself it impacts it. But I do think that this final surge in the AMO and this 
bubbling and boiling of the North Atlantic is probably a sign of the, the of the beginning of the end of the warming trend of the Atlantic Ocean that then turns on a dime out of nowhere. It just all of a sudden goes straight down and and everyone doesn't know what happened until you know the weather just acts completely differently from what we've been accustomed to for the last 30 or 40 years. Okay. All right, Sean, good stuff as usual. Folks want to reach out to you and get more information about what you're doing at Hacka Financial. What's the best way to do that? Our uh, Twitter page is at Faradex11. We have our website, Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, advisors.com. And of course, we have our LinkedIn page. Search my name or the Hackett Financial Advisors. From time to time, we place comments, interviews, and things about some of these cycles to kind of uh, steer people um, in the right direction with how we look at the world, how we look at agriculture, climate, and how we make our price projections. Right on, man. Sean, I appreciate you taking time to be on the podcast. Sounds good, Casey. Always have a, always have a blast. Thanks, man. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC or LinkedIn over at Moving Iron Podcast. Go see the YouTube version of this on the YouTube channel, which is the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. Go to Moving Iron LLC for everything Moving Iron related. And if you want to see more information about the Moving Iron Summit, it's all that's there. It's September 11th through the 13th in Nashville. You can send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at movingironpodcast.com if you want to get more information about that. Be one of the first 150 people to sign up, and Axon Tire will take advantage of the, well, you can take advantage of Axon Tire's $50 discount with that. So with that, I'm Casey Seymour, Sean Hackett. Just going to smile, folks. Out. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving higher in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving higher time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving on